and welcome to PCSJ Beyond the Article. I'm Julia Largen, the managing editor of Popular Cultural Studies Journal. Today's long episode features a panel discussion about academics who dropped out of high school and how they got to where they are now. This discussion grew out of a recent PCSJ Dialogue episode about popular culture and pedagogy. Joining me on the panel are Alex Lester, Aaron Burl, and Linda Howell. Alex Lester lives in northeastern Pennsylvania with his chihuahua, Henry Benjamin. He works as an instructional designer at Labore College of Healthcare and is also working on a Master of Arts in Philosophy of Education from the University of Winchester. In his free time, he enjoys being in nature, listening to audiobooks, traveling, eating delicious vegetarian food, and getting excited about pretty much everything and anything. He loves Starbucks, Peloton, 90s sitcoms, PBS NewsHour, and is shamelessly a fan of all things Christmas. This includes a deep yet unironic passion for Hallmark Christmas movies. Same. I also love them. Aaron Burl is a PhD candidate at Massey University focused on creating a framework for increasing diversity in the workplace. Her research interests include intersectional feminism, norms of social power and exchange, pop culture storytelling, equity, and social justice advocacy. And Linda Howell is an assistant professor of English and director of the writing program and center at the University of North Florida. She teaches writing, media, and fan studies courses. Her research focuses on digital literacy practices with an emphasis on annotations, plagiarism, and citation, which in informs her fan studies scholarship that looks at fans and fan spaces as symbiotic partners with the authorized creators of texts. In the past few years, she has published and presented on the meta-commentary spaces surrounding the television series Supernatural. She is currently working on how those observations might help to explore other spaces such as political and franchise fandoms. Enjoy the episode! Welcome everyone to today's episode. Uh, today I have with me three individuals. Um, if you would each like to introduce yourself and we'll start with Alex. Hi, my name is Alexander Lester. You can call me Alex. Um, I am an instructional designer at Labore College of Healthcare and I'm also doing a master's at uh, University of Winchester in philosophy of education. Welcome, Erin. Uh, hi, Erin uh, Burrell. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a Canadian migrant living in Aotearoa, New Zealand. All right, and Linda. Hi, I'm Linda Howell, and I am the director of the writing program at the University of North Florida, and um, that's a native New Yorker. Well, I'm so glad to have all three of you here today. Um, we had a conversation with the PCSJ Dialogue that was in July, I think, at some point. Um, we were talking about pop popular culture and pedagogy and how we're using pop culture in the classroom. And from that conversation, kind of ping-ponged around the three of you that you all were at some point uh, dropping out of high school and then have either got a GED or something equivalent or even re-enrolled in high school. Um, and so I wanted to have a conversation about that. But before we get there... I want to know what all of your backgrounds are. How did you get into popular culture? Because it's not a field that we necessarily, you know, kind of aim for. We use, a lot of us will stumble upon it. So how did each of you get into pop culture studies? I stumbled. I, I stumbled, fell on my face, stumbled. Um, in my traditional scholarship, I'm an equity management scholar. So I'm looking at ways to make our organizations more equal. And what I've realized, especially in teaching equity in the classroom, is that we need to have, we need metaphors and analogies, and we need to have stories that students can connect with. And pop culture has always been a thing that I've loved as a person, as an individual. Um, it is my safety place, my escape. 
And so I often incorporate those stories into what I'm teaching. And then I realized in this strange epiphany that I can actually talk about this as a scholar. And it's been a really great way for me to stretch my equity lens and my feminist writing and match it up with things that a lot of us are talking about in our regular dialogue. So not just even in the scholarly landscape, but actually with people who aren't scholars. And I think it's a great way to connect with people. So um, I stumbled and hopefully I'm standing now, uh, but we'll see. Hey, uh, Alex, how do you yeah. find pop culture studies? <laughs> so I found pop culture um, kind of by accident. So I started college um and I was studying human services I was going to become a psychologist thought that's kind of uh, natural growth for me and that's where I was kind of headed and I ended up falling in love with philosophy and it was very much uh it, it kind of gave a lot of answers to the questions that were that were in my own kind of head and so I fell in love with philosophy and I ironically went to, uh, when I went to transfer schools, um, I got my associate degree and I went to transfer schools, I um, ended up going to um, King's College here in the Scranton area, it's in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and the chair at the time, I think he's still the chair, um, is William Irwin, who is the creator of the and philosophy series, so the pop culture and philosophy series. So um, he created the genre um, for philosophy or academics, technically, um, popularizing um, academia. Uh, so he was one of the first people to create a, these kind of you know, books, if you will. So the reason why we have these books in the store and also like you have psychology and I think there's like also like physics too, is because of this guy uh, and his teammates. I ended up, I was reading one of his books at the time when I went to interview and I was like, oh, like this is a thing I could do, pop culture and philosophy. And so I continued to study um, philosophy, but during my time in a, as a philosophy major, I realized that um, my goal was not to be a gatekeeper, but to open up the doors of academia. And philosophy is very exclusionary. Um, I did not go to his school, so I, I don't know what his program's like, but philosophy in general is exclusionary. And so I decided to um, study pop culture during my master's and I um, ended up taking courses in the pop culture department at Bowling Green. But I had a very specific understanding of pop culture and what it could do because I always viewed it as a, fool, uh, a tool for equalizing education because it was how I closed the gaps in my own um, kind of broken education. So um, yeah, it was just, it's really about it kind of my love of pedagogy and my love of um, kind of making education accessible that's how I fell into it. Cause my goal was always kind of teacher slash healer, if you will. Yeah. Interesting. All right. And Linda, how did you end up where you are? Um, so mine, I guess, is kind of a um, bifurcated journey, right? So um, part of it's personal. I grew up in a family that loved things that loved, you know, stories and loved music. And, you know, we kind of were immersed in popular culture. And so it was one of my, my meaning making tools growing up. And so when I got into college, I was, uh, I was surprised at the disconnect between, you know, the things I loved and the things I was supposed to love and appreciate. And so part of my, part of, I guess, my project was trying to um, reconcile those two, right? Then I took a class as an undergrad in literary uh, theory with uh, literary interpretation. 
and my professor at the time did these fantastic analyses of matrix and alien and and, and you know kind of use those tools in those ways and i could see how it um, could be utilized that way and at the same time he was encouraging me in my interest in fan studies and so i was you know kind of my journey went from personal to scholarly and then from scholarly to pedagogical you know so I'm, i direct the writing program i'm very invested in those points of connection where students can not be ashamed of the meaning making that they do in the world, but to use that as a way of understanding how others, you know, make meaning as well. So that's kind of like, you know, so it it was a a bifurcated journey, but that's how I kind of got into it. And then I've maintained my interest, my scholarship, being a fan studies. So fantastic. Yeah. I really to hear how people get to pop culture because like many of you, I stumbled upon it. Um, kind of on accident or mostly on accident. Uh, so that's always fun. All right. When not researching, what do you all like to do for fun? Which is for me a really hard question because I never know what I like to do for fun. It's always watch TV, but I also can't do that just for fun as you all are aware. Um, and so it's always a hard question for me, but Linda, we'll start with you. What do you like to do on, um, on your free time when you're not researching or teaching or working in the school library that's such a that's such a challenging you know question (laughs) (laughs) you know it's interesting um during my ma my master's defense uh, one of my um one of my members asked me the question have you ever written about a text you don't like right and the the reason i I tell this story is because my response to it was something to the effect of i just like i like doing it so that it doesn't really matter what the text is so when I'm not doing that thing I like, I have, I have to say, I, I, I go and play bingo. Do you win? Sometimes, yeah, you know, it's, uh, I think it was inheritance from my, my mother. My mother used to love to play bingo and I hated it. You know, I hated <laughs> it. And then like one, one day, uh, it was actually on her birthday, you know, she died back in 2012 and it was one of her birthdays in the intervening years. And I was like, I think I'm gonna go play bingo in her honor. And then I ended up meeting these really cool old ladies and I was like, oh, this is fun. So, you know, when I, when, I want, when I want to get away, I go and like hang out for a couple of hours with the old ladies, you know, which about Fantastic. the Fantastic. I should try that myself. <laughs> I always like the little marker. Like when yeah. I was a kid, there's just something exciting about the little bingo stamp marker thing. I don't know. And that beautiful kind of moment when you do have bingo, you're like, bingo! <laughs> It's a very exciting moment, yes. Erin, what do you like to do when you are not researching or teaching? I would say I sort of segregate my life between inside hobbies and outside hobbies. I'm lucky enough to live by the beach, so I do a lot of hiking, a lot of beach swimming, paddleboarding, stuff like that. But I also, I do, I like content for the sake of content, so I do have a lot of what I call um, comfort food content. So I re-watch a lot of things that I love as well. Um, I am quite a strange little crafty person so I make a lot of quilts and a lot of things um like knitting and stuff that are able to be multitasked while watching content very key I do the same with cross stitch (laughs) so those those would be my 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 primary it's either an inside hobby or an outside hobby and Alec yeah so you know pre-covid I would go um Sunday nights to a karaoke bar and sing and now it's really just 
TV watching. I do <laughs> gather with some friends. We're a quarantine bubble. It's my sister and uh, my neighbors and a few other people. Very small. It's like four or five people. And we um, gather around a fire pit. And that's become almost weekly for the entire like spring, summer. And oh, going nice. Yeah. And so... Um, you know, hanging out with friends and I also like to sing. So obviously the karaoke, but I started doing vocal lessons via Zoom uh, with J.R. Richards, the front man or the former front man of Dishwalla. And so that was, that's been interesting, though I've taken a break um, just because I've had a lot of changes in my life. So just, you know, TV. I, I have a lot of comfort food TV as well. I'm currently watching Bob's Burgers um, for the first time straight through and I'm like, kind of in love with it though when I first <laughs> saw it I really didn't like it so um it grew up on me so yeah I think I'm in season three now just... all right um so getting into like the meat of our discussion today I'd like to start off with a question of terminology so what should we refer to the individuals who don't finish high school whether they drop out or um, you know, the kind of the colloquial term is high school dropout, but is that an appropriate term? Is there a better phrase that we should use to talk about these individuals who might drop out of high school? What, what's a good terminology for that? I think one of the problems with the term is it kind of generalizes the experience. I mean, so for example, I dropped out because I was never really in, right? I mean, it was to a certain degree, I was one of those people that, that kind of fell through the cracks of public education. I was a truant. I mean, I, you know, I was, I was a bad student <laughs> and I found all these other things and, and also other circumstances. Um, but other people, I mean, I've known people who have, you know, dropped out because, you know, they were able to find alternative ways to, to finish it. Um, so I think that one of the, it's a, it's a big term for a lot of nuanced journeys. I don't know if, you, if there is another term, but I think maybe when we're talking about it, it might be the term that we use just because it's it's there, it's available, but perhaps we should interrogate the term after that. Yeah, I, I think Linda's right. I think the, the generalization that we do sort of societally, that label, um, it's good shorthand. But I would say that none of us have anywhere near the same experience of this one thing, this one label, um, and our reasons and our logic and all of the things that got us there are probably very different. And I, I think that, you know, we talk about our, our social landscape and the, the homes we were raised in and what the school environment we were in was. And all of those things really feeds into, I'm going to call it a choice to drop out, but the, the circumstances that lead to not completing your education following that traditional path. And I, I just think we, we have to be cautious with the generalization, uh, like any label, like any shorthand. <laughs> right, because right, yeah. none of us are the same. Yeah, I, I mean, I fully agree. So my situation is also different. I think we all, as Aaron said, have different kind of experiences. So there is no easy way besides using high school dropout for my situation. But I always then preface, but I went back and I finished because it was more traditional than like a GED path, which is sort of where your head might go naturally if you hear somebody finished but dropped out, right? I dropped out for a year and then I decided to go back and finish because I was still within that age range where I could. Um, and I was a young starter, so I was only 18 when I graduated, right? But I was supposed to graduate at 17. So I always add that caveat 
that, yeah, I was a high school dropout, but I went back because it is a very specific experience and my upbringing was also very specific. So it allows for a kind of a conversation to unfold. I don't know if there's another way though to say, right, that there is a term that we could use that uh, kind of captures those experiences, right? Without kind of adding caveats or, you know, whatever it is. And I think I spoke back to what Aaron was saying too, is that with the, you know, the shorthand of high school dropout not only has the, the added benefit of trying to capture what that experience is, but it also can present a prejudice for those who have, you know, because I didn't, I mean, I didn't go back. I did get my GED. You know, in fact, I didn't, you know, um, I, um, yeah, I didn't go back and then I didn't go to college until I was in my early 20s. Um, and so that like there's this whole sense of there's a punitive nature to the to them to the term that somehow it is encapsulating of something that it's not encapsulating of. And I think that's where we need to be cautious because it can it can just basically turn into a caricature. Instead, you know, it, it goes, it moves behind, but beyond stereotype and caricature. Uh, so the high school dropout is the, you know, I mean, as a woman, I have to, you know, I found myself having to underscore that, no, I wasn't pregnant. I didn't drop out of school because I was pregnant. And so I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of presumptions that come with that, that we got to be, and they're punitive. They place us in categories. It's really hard to work out of. Yeah, I'm thinking about um, the differences that we react to people who drop out of college or drop out of grad school compared to dropping out of high school and how the former two of those grad school and college is normally like you did a good thing probably by dropping out but high school it's you did a bad thing by dropping out usually. And I'm interested in how you react to those sort of conversations if they've come up of people automatically thinking that because you dropped out, it was a bad decision for you, which I'm sure for all three of you, it was not a bad decision, that there was something else going on that spurred this decision, which you talked about a little bit, but we usually don't think twice about those who drop out of college or grad school or, you know, tech school of some sort or whatever. So what's the difference between age in this? That's the biggest difference in the level of education. I don't even know if it's age. I would say it's the difference between compulsory education and non-compulsory education. So the sense is that, you know, uh, to a certain degree, when you're in grad school or even when you're an undergrad, you don't need to be there, right? You're, I mean, there's not a cultural, although in some areas of the world, there is kind of more of a cultural uh, impetus and pressure to, to go on to undergrad, for example. But there is that sense of compulsory versus non-compulsory. Most of the places we've grown up, K through 12 is compulsory. And so there is a sense, that, and I think that, that uh, adds to that confusion. It's like, not only did you drop out, but that's in such, you know, such direct opposition to what you're supposed to do. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I think it also adds a layer onto our home lives. So there's a lot of assumptions that come from you didn't have supportive parents or any of those things. And while each circumstance is always going to be different, uh, I think that that extra baggage of, at least I'm going to speak for myself, of being a poor white trash dropout, it adds an extra layer. You know, my mom worked really hard. She was a, she is a good human. Uh, but the circumstances surrounding my situation weren't something that she was going to fight me on. Um, and 
I think all of those things sort of come into play. So we're not just talking about my choice. We have a judgment on my family, my home life, um, my financial situation. There, there's these like heaps and heaps of layers uh, that go on to somebody who hasn't even got a fully formed brain yet. And so I, I just, I think that that adds to some of the, some of the damage, some of the shame. Um, and I've mentioned it before, you know, I just pretended I didn't, wasn't a dropout for into my thirties. Like I never talked about it. I just hid it from people. Um, only now when I'm realizing that at that point of difference, I could actually maybe help somebody that thinks that they couldn't do it has motivated me to actually speak out about it. So, and I had to overcome a lot of my own garbage in order to even make that admission. Yeah. I think that the um, kind of projection on your family is interesting because it's also, um, it's really about where you grew up. So I was really thinking about, I grew up in a very affluent area. We were not affluent. My mom was, uh, we were considered working poor. The, um, just the situation my mom sacrificed, we, you know, did food pantry so I could have a good education, which makes it even more ironic that I dropped out. But I also, because I lived in an affluent space, um, and the reasons why I dropped out, which were for health reasons, there was never a stigma on my family about why I left. So it was sort of just not talked about in the social circles because the people that were, that would be talking about it were privileged and they probably just had their own hidden skeletons that they just didn't talk about. So it was sort of like, oh, he went away to get help or whatever it was. I was just sitting at home watching TV, but they didn't know that. Yeah, I think it's interesting though, because I didn't have that same like projection of, or at least I didn't feel like I had that same projection of, you know, like being considered um, impoverished. I wasn't being supported because anybody that knew my family knew my mom was very hands-on and super supportive. Um, and I was going through some stuff that needed to be taken care of. And I really think that it's interesting to think about based on geography, because I was not wealthy, I was poor, but I grew up in a wealthy area, the pressures, right? And this also brings up something really interesting about compulsory education and the fact that um, I have certain feelings about, for example, the Varsity Blues scandal, because there is a undertone, at least in the culture that I grew up in, that she would go on to get an undergrad and most likely a grad degree. That was just part of the culture. Education was always assumed. I think there's something to be said about, right, that can give us at least a little bit of empathy into this, uh, you know, side show kind of thing of why certain communities of privilege, even if they, the student isn't academically enabled, doesn't want to do academia because, right, we're talking about, what is it, Olivia, is it Olivia Jade? Is that her name? Like, she didn't want the Jada yeah. Pinkett Smith Red Talk, right? She didn't want to go to school, um, but it was kind of forced on her. And that's a very much a cultural thing of affluent spaces, even if you are not affluent in that area, there's a pressure. And so I also did not use the term high school dropout. And I still tend to, if I used it, I'm like, I dropped out, but <laughs> I always have the but I never say it because also I feel in a way too, because I lived in an affluent area, 
I had the opportunity to make the mistake of dropping out and not then falling out of the system to the point of no return. Because of the resources that were in place at the schools that I went to, I was able to kind of, there was a safety net there that is not there for 90% of the school systems. The school system I went to was top three in the country. And so the systems that were in place to kind of catch students that were like me actually worked for me and I was able to kind of get myself to a point where I could go back and finish. But I did end up dropping out for a year and I graduated late. So does that make me a high school dropout in the traditional sense? There's a lot more nuance there. But I think it's interesting to think about geography and how if I was in anywhere else, I most likely would not have finished. And if I was lucky enough to have finished after making that mistake of dropping out, it was the right thing for me at the time, but and I air quoted that just so you guys can <laughs> hear it on the podcast. Um, mistake. The idea of being able to learn from your mistakes is very much um, a resource and a privilege of those who have wealth, even, but it's really about those who have access to the resources of the wealthy. It's not even if you're wealthy yourself, though there's nuances to that depending on your lifestyle. So um, I'm really interested how y'all got from uh, dropping out of high school to where you are today or where you have found yourself essentially like what at what point did you decide I think Linda you said you went to college and you know in your 20s at what point did you decide that you wanted to go back into school and how did you go about doing that so uh, my story was my parents were very very um, disappointed because my dad uh, like a, uh, like Aaron I mean I grew up very very poor for my my dad thought education was the escape and so when I dropped out I mean it was very disappointing I didn't say this but one of the things that added to my dropping out was I was um, hit by a car uh, walking across the street when I was like um, when I was 16 or 17 17 wow. and uh, so that that contributed to my kind of giving up on my, yeah, I was already a bad student and that did not uh, help with, uh, you know, keeping me in <laughs> to- Understandably. Uh, so during my, uh, so a year of recovery, over a year, uh, I had massive uh, nerve damage. Uh, I read like thousands of romance novels and I wanted to write romance novels, but then I realized, ah, well, I'm never going to do that. That's not, my, that's not the way. Life I'm gonna lead. So you know, after surgery and stuff, I ended up uh, working at a, at a factory. Then I worked as a short order cook. Then I worked as a chambermaid. So I mean, I kind of did uh, like a lot of odd jobs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And my parents started nagging me because I finally got my GED and I was like done. I was like, okay, you know. The deal was that if I just get my AS, my associate's in science, so I can get a job, I wouldn't have to work, right? We were poor, but we figured it out. And uh, so then I took my first humanities class and I fell in love and I realized, wow, <laughs> I can do this. And I became like super A student. And then I ended up going on for university. To, so I went from community college to uh, four-year university. And then at my graduation, my dad said to me, he died like four months after my graduation mm. from university. He said, okay, so so what's the next degree? And so kind of being going out for my master's and my PhD was a promise that I kind of implicitly made. And so that's kind of how I how I got there. I guess my path is definitely a little bit different. I dropped out and moved across Canada 
um, and some amazing family friends um, supported me to do another semester of school after I'd been out for about a year. And it was then that I discovered the military. And so at 17, I signed the papers and spent a little bit of time in the military. And that reminded me that trades and skills and intelligence are only limited by motivation. I think the the challenge I faced with high school was I wasn't a bad student. Um, I was more motivated by working than I was by school. And I think even now I, I sort of struggle. My neurodivergence that I now understand um, wants immediate gratification over long-term gratification. And so I was like, you know what? Working at my crappy food services job, I was still able to pay for my car insurance and pay for clothes and shelter and all of those things. And so that had been really motivating to me. Ultimately, my version of success was still sort of surrounding what my parents had accomplished, which while they worked very hard, they were always working for somebody else. Weren't even really, I'm going to say chasing the middle class dream. They were just sort of chasing the not broke dream not working poverty dream. So I was looking at it and saying, hey, income. And when I joined the military, the military was like, we'll pay you a decent wage and anything you want to learn, you can take classes on, you can train on. And so I took courses and I I excelled at things like first aid and, and marksmanship and random things that had nothing to do with what I do today. <laughs> uh, but it reminded me that I was smart enough for these things. Um, and the place that I struggled in the military was physicality, not intelligence. When I got out of the military, I realized maybe I should try and stretch my intelligence a little bit. And so I found a college loophole in their community college that I could argue for um, previous lived experience and get college admission. The military is really good for previous lived experience on your CVs <laughs> or your resumes. And they said, hey, yeah, you know what? This sounds like a good idea. And so I started taking classes, but I, by that point, realized that I was very pragmatic and I started taking classes and things that would get me work, not things that were necessarily fascinating to me, but things that would help me professionally. And I was with a company at the time, full credit to Home Depot. They helped pay for classes. So every time you passed a class with a certain grade, you got a credit back and they helped to fund my opportunities. Um, and then as I was doing those things, my career started to grow with them because I was doing those things. And so I sort of got that, I'm going to call it very commercial motivation for study. So each time I'd learned something, I got a little bit of a promotion, a little bit more pay. My life got a little bit easier, took a little bit of that pressure off of always being sort of on that cusp of um, wondering if you can get past the next paycheck that got me through. So I climbed my career based on those sort of working full-time and taking part-time courses. So over a decade with, with Home Depot, I managed to acquire a lot of skills and knowledge and very commercial, very business-related stuff before moving on in my career, changing companies. I had a, quite a life-changing event in 2010. I did a charity bike ride and I rode my bike across Canada for kids' cancer. And it sort of reminded me that we can all do anything we want if we're willing to put in the time and the training and the sweat. And that's when I started talking to a friend about maybe doing a master's degree. 
And I had reached a point in my career where the company I was with at the time had a rule you couldn't get promoted if you didn't have postgraduate education. And in order to get to that next echelon, the answer was a master's of some sort. The default master's for business kids is an MBA, um, the most expensive degree other than an MD in the world on average. <laughs> Not the smartest choice, I'm going to say, but that got me hooked on grad school. So from there, I did a postgrad in education and technology design uh, because I was working commercially in technology at the time. And I wanted to do a better job of training people and empowering people in the technology space. And that led to a master's in business studies so that I could look at equity and start to unwind the organizational problems. And that thesis then kind of, I'm going to call it a, I, I called it a test run for a PhD. Um, <laughs> do I want to do independent research? Is this lonely, strange process of human research for me? And that led me into my PhD that I'm doing now. So I'm sort of a strange egg because, you know, I didn't go to grad school until I was in my mid thirties and I'm going to be, if all things go on schedule, grad school schedule, um, air quotes there, uh, I'll be 45 <laughs> when I finish my PhD. So I'm not I'm not in a place that a lot of other people are, but then I look at it and I think, you know, I've got some peers that are 23, 24 doing their PhDs and the questions they're asking aren't the same. And I, I think there's great benefit to being a mature student or um, I often joke that I, you know, I was driving before most of them were being born. So, <laughs> you know, I think that the lens that I have and the way I see the world is helping me challenge things. Um, plus I have some power because I have a good bank account uh, behind me, which has given me privileges that a lot of others don't have. Yeah. So by the time I graduated high school, um, I was like, screw this shiz. I'm done. Uh, I hate education. Um, I literally am still so proud of my high school diploma, even with all my other awards and degrees. Um, I have it up on my wall, uh, along with all the other degrees, uh, because it was so tumultuous of an experience. Um, and after high school, I decided to go to LA. I wanted to try to be an actor because that was the only thing I thrived in in high school was drama class, like every other kid that was kind of <laughs> awkward and addicted to pop culture. And so I did that for about six, seven months and could not get uh, consistent work. Um, and so I moved back home. Um, my mom also ended up getting sick around this time. We moved to a small town and I was able to go um, back to school. It was either that or continue to work menial jobs because I was working at like Whole Foods and working at Whole Foods um, is uh, soul sucking because you have, right? Like people are spending what you're making within like two weeks in one transaction. And you're just like, what is going on here, right? Like they call it whole paycheck for a reason. It's like a really bad joke, but like when you... Like it was my whole paycheck. Um, and so it, it was interesting to be like, I, I was fed up. Uh, we moved back to a small town to help uh, save on funds uh, because I wasn't making much. And um, my mom was on disability at this point. And so I ended up 
kind of convincing my sister to move in. Um, and we all moved to the small town so that we could go back and finish school while kind of caretaking for her as well. And because of this privilege that my mom gave me of like reducing rent and only having to pay a small amount, I was able to enroll in school full-time, work part-time at PetSmart, while also, you know, trying to like continue this path that was also always ingrained in me, right? Like culturally, there was nothing else to do but education. And I was at a point where I didn't have any skills. I was definitely not willing to sign up for the military. That was before Don't Ask, Don't Tell um, was revoked. <laughs> so, you know, that was, I, I clearly cannot pass as heterosexual. Um, and so that just would not have fl- uh, flown. And so there was no job opportunities for me unless I wanted to become a mechanic. And I cannot even like screw well I'm much better now and I'm proud of myself but I could not even like use a screwdriver or a drill for the longest time yeah uh so um my sister and my mom did that stuff growing up I was like okay um so you know like I had no skills so I was like go back to school and do something with your mind because that's what I was good at was thinking I've always been good at thinking and so it was like okay I'm gonna be a psychologist and then I fell in love with philosophy I just was like okay well I didn't get a degree in psychology and I got a degree in philosophy. And even if I did get a degree in psychology, that's not going to get me a job anywhere. So time to get a master's. And I ended up being like, oh yeah, I could be a professor too. And I started doing that and I fell into this online learning space. And um, that's how I kind of became an instructional designer, but I also teach still too. And so, yeah, that's sort of where I ended up and I'm continuing my education because that's what I think I do so at least yeah it, it's what brings me joy or sparks joy if you will <laughs> yeah I also grew up in that culture of it was always assumed that I would go to college grad school was not always assumed but I'm a third generation grad student and so it my like my grandmother has her MDiv and my grand my father has his master's and so like it's not abnormal for my family um, but it was very much it was never are you going to go to college it was where are you going to go to college and so I very much have that exact same I don't even want to call it pressure because I didn't feel pressured at the time I wanted to go we talk a lot about first generation students um, or at least the the circles that I'm in at, at institutions it's always a lot of focus on how we can help first generation students succeed and understanding that there's some there may be some overlap between those who drop out of high school and first generation college students but do you think that we need to put more emphasis on helping and kind of figuring out how to provide a space for those who drop out of high school to succeed in college and if so what does that look like yeah so i do i think that it's interesting because a large amount of my first year was catching up because I had such a broken education, even though I went back and I finished, um, I went to 11 different schools by the time I graduated high school, um, just because of like relocation, et cetera. And because of that, or I should say I transferred 11 times and then go to 11 schools, there was definitely a learning curve, um, not just the hitting curriculum, which needs to be taught to all students that are first generation. Um, that's hands down. Everybody should be doing it in first year seminars should be around that, not about how to take notes. It should be about the hidden curriculum because if you don't know how to ask for an extension, you're never going to get an extension and you're going to fail the class. I definitely, as an instructor, have carved out time in all my courses to reinforce those for all, reinforce the hidden curriculum for all my students. Um, but beyond that, there was, you know, an academic kind of uh, 
remedial work that I had to do on my own to continue on and be successful. I mean, I got all A's, I was thriving, but there was, I had to do extra work that was kind of unspoken. And there's a philosopher, Jennifer Morton, who wrote a book about the ethical costs of moving on up. And basically she writes about what she calls strivers, which are first generation immigrants, um, the, it's first gen students ultimately. And she talks about the ethical costs of continuing your education. Because when you do go on to get an education, right, you have to give up certain things. I didn't have a social life because I was working, I was helping with my mom and I was being a full-time student. And that meant to really be able to do that, I needed to not do the extracurriculars, not do any of the other things that would set me up for a transfer to a better school or success of having a strong network. If I'm only going to get an undergrad degree, I would have never had a network. You know, I had very limited friends because I was also non-traditional, right? So I went back when I was like 23, I think it was. And so I was non-traditional even at that age. And I wouldn't have had the network, but that's one of the ethical costs, right, of deciding to better yourself and continue with your education. And if we don't talk about those issues, though, if we don't talk about the sacrifices we have to make as first-gen students and as students that are also students that dropped out of high school and are going back and trying to do this, we are not going to really be able to kind of ameliorate the trauma that it causes, because there's a lot of dissonance that you're not realizing when your friends are asking you to do certain things and hang out or whatever and you're like no I have to do this paper or you have to sacrifice family time because you already have kids or whatever the situation is right especially if you're like a single mother who did leave high school because of having a baby which is a common though not the only reason why people drop out of high school right if you don't realize that hey, you're going to probably miss quite a bit of your child's benchmarks because you're doing this. And if we don't acknowledge that as um, educators and we don't create spaces for them to maybe be able to like catch some of those things, right? Or allow for flexibility, right? Just even flexibility within the classroom. We're going to do a major disservice for the students because if they don't actually finish, we know statistically, right? That if you leave with any kind of college debt, you are actually doing your family even more harm than never even walking in the door. So if we get to the point where we get students and we're forcing them out the door because they're not they don't fit in the culture or whatever it is, um, and we don't create a culture that's actually inviting to them, we are actively doing harm to people's bodies and mainly black and brown body. Although the academy has been built on racism um, and ableism, it, literally the physical yeah. design is ableistic, right? Stairs, et cetera. We have a choice to make going forward if we're going to continue that. And the harm that we might do as instructors, um, and this is something also to keep in mind for grad students, because I've seen a lot of grad students go into the classroom and use it as a playground for ego. I'm sure some of you guys have experienced that in like your grad teaching classes where you're like, why are you trying to be so punitive over these small things, right? Those small things really can make or break students' experiences. And if you're actively harming people, because that's what that is, what are we even doing? What is this education? I don't know. So anyways, yes, we do need to create a space. I think that cost, I look at it very much as, as damage because in my experience, we often talk about how long everything is supposed to take. And so we put a lot of pressure on things like, take out the student loans so that you can finish on time. 
I don't know if it's okay to swear, but like that's ultimately that's that's garbage. It's BS. One more semester in order to not have that debt, one more semester in order to have the time to synthesize the knowledge. You know, I think Linda used the term at the beginning of meaning making and, you know, thinking as a profession, thinking as a student, this is like, it is actually huge load on our lives. You know, while you're trying to do that, especially as a first generation student, all of that expectation of having the time to think when you're busy also having the time to survive. Like I started all of my school working full time and my PhD is the first time that I haven't been working full time. And I, I look at that and I think that that baggage of, you know, what I was doing writing papers for my first master's degree at one o'clock in the morning, not because I was out partying, but because I was with clients until 730 at night and was doing my day job and sweating it out, doing my day job, trying to get everything done. And I think we, we forget about those added pressures that a lot of first gen students or a lot of even the high school dropouts experience, because we say that it's supposed to take, it's a four-year degree. Who cares if it takes five? Like yeah. nobody actually cares how long it takes you to do it. And if you can not have debt, like the one thing that I, I have done because I was coming to school so late was I made the decision that I would have no graduate school debt. So everything has been paid for out of pocket. And honestly, when I look back on it, it is the best choice I've ever made. So there was Great a lot choice. of sacrifices to put money away to make that grad school choice happen. There were sacrifices along the way to work full time in order to make grad school happen. But I never got that university camaraderie. I was already too late when I decided to start taking college classes. I wasn't, you know, 19. I wasn't having that college experience. I've never had a college experience or university experience. I've only ever been older than my peers in this place. And because of those costs, we, we often forget about that. And I look at it, especially with my young students of color here, um, the physicality of this city has terrible transit. So if you are um, coming in from one of our lower income neighborhoods, you're looking at probably a couple of hours each day in transit to get to class. And I start to think about that the time burden on a student, especially if you are active in your community um, or your church or your other personal events and you've got a family and other pieces and you've got to find a way to make some income. I think about all of those burdens and I really think we could all be served by talking about who cares how long it took you? Who cares if you were 22 when you got your GED and then 28 when you decided to, to do an undergraduate degree? I've got a friend who's in his mid fifties and he's just finishing up his first undergraduate degree. And honestly, his profs are delighted by him. His writing is exceptional. And all of these things come from the fact that he's had a whole other life before. So I, I really think that there's an opportunity for us to not only just teach those extra pieces of curriculum, teach the idea of expectation, talk about why we are doing things the way we're doing. You know, I'm working right now on a lot of stuff on, around plagiarism and where plagiarism comes from. And most of it isn't hateful. Most of it is just lack of skill. And because we're not necessarily handing those skills out with the free lunches on the quad, there just, there isn't time for that. And I think that there's a great opportunity for us to talk about non-traditional expectations of getting a degree you know I'll be old when I finish compared to a lot of my peers but it doesn't make my letters any less valid <laughs> um, you know like I still I'll still get to say I'm a doctor of philosophy at the end 
so I, I just think that there's there's an opportunity for us to talk about that and to think about what the expectations are. I recently had a conversation with a really senior member of my university talking about how to get the sort of one or two permanent positions that are actually going to come up. And they said that they want unicorns, which effectively means they're asking for people of privilege because they want people that are finishing their PhD with around 10 publications in high ranking scholarly journals. They want people who have done service and have a well-meaning scholarship and probably have gotten some grants. So that means that they have to be somebody who has had a bucket load of privilege in, in 95% of cases. And it just, we're propagating that racism and ableism. And somebody who maybe is dealing with, I've got a friend dealing with chronic fatigue right now, their scholarship was brilliant. But it takes them a bit longer than it might take somebody who isn't having physical limitations on their body. I have another friend who's visually struggling, so they can only spend a certain amount of time on screen. So that means that they spend a lot of it recording and then coming back and editing. And it's just, we, we've got to look at what that timeline means and what our expectations mean. I just, I think it, I think that's an opportunity for us. If we want to be disruptive in the academy, I think talking about how long it takes to do things is going to be really fantastic for making some change. You also yeah. say something really brilliant in the fact that the idea of also self-funding your grad degree, there's so much prejudice against it, especially in the humanities, as well as social sciences, right? Unless you're hard sciences and you know you can go to industry and make money, if you're self-funding, there is stigma, right? There's a culture of stigma. We also know and we talk about programs that don't fully fund their students, right? We're like, oh, you stay away from that. That's like not a good program. And so there's something to be said though about even if you don't get the full funding, right? Financially allotting that money towards your degree and making it work for you because the reality is I, or for my experience at least, uh, I started my doctorate program and I was funded, um, but the amount of work I was doing as a full-time worker and the amount of hours that they wanted for my grad assistantship didn't work for me. And I was also dealing with a little bit of depression at the time. And so I ended up quitting and giving up my, um, or giving up my assistantship and I self-fund now. And that is a specific choice I'm making because I have the money to be able to cash flow it. Not everybody's in the position that they can cash flow, but it's, it is something that I'm mindfully doing sort of in like the Aaron's style that I realized 20 extra hours of my week, it's just better for me to cash flow and then have my employer pay for a certain amount of my tuition. It just works better for my lifestyle. And I'd rather just pay for that convenience. And that's also a very privileged thing to be like, oh, I'm just going to pay my tuition um, out of pocket. But I've also saved for it and I've worked for it so that I could do that. And I've gotten told that that's a really bad idea. And I'm like, also like, well, it's the thing that works for my current lifestyle and what my passions are and what I want to do with my life. And so um, I think we have to keep that in mind that sometimes not only is it the time frame, which I think is also a hugely important uh, conversation of when we should finish a degree, but also the ability to digest material, but we should also really think about how we're funding things. Are you making active choices to be debt-free, which is a whole question, because there is also, I, I notice at least within academic Twitter, that there is a kind of a, and I don't, 
I, I want to be very careful when I say this, but there is a weird assumption that they people deserve jobs because they've jumped through the hoops and gotten the degrees in a certain amount of time, but they've also taken on a obscene amount of debt. And now that there's this conversation, right? And we know that there are no jobs in academia, right? I mean, relative, especially if you don't go to a low tier school. So even if you are jumping through the hoops, nothing's guaranteed in life. And so from a person that didn't have money growing up, I am very much in Aaron's kind of camp in the sense that I believe that I shouldn't take on the debt if I can't afford it. But again, privileged situation where I've been able to amass a little bit of savings to be able to afford that. If we're talking about first generation students, not, that's not always going to be the case, right? Because um, sometimes the student loans help them survive. And so that's also a whole other question and thing we should be addressing. Yeah, I would add to this. Well, first of all, Aaron, my, my dissertation was on plagiarism. So at any point you want to talk, uh, I'm more than happy to. <laughs> uh, it's called the plagiarism turn, a textual tricksterism and digital savagery. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I do think to go back to what Aaron was talking about with timing, we also have to remember that, especially in the states, there are a lot of states that actually require a four-year graduation break. Uh, right. So, like in Florida. One of the performance metrics that we have, students, the university is actually funded by uh, progression of the degree, and, and so there's kind of all, all these different external pressures that make it. I mean, I, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I was saying, you know, all these contrary narratives. We want you to, we want college to be accessible, but we create all these different barriers to which a caretaker, somebody who has, you know, who has to care for their their have kids, um, who have elderly parents, who have, you know, I mean, there's all these different, who, who themselves might have particular challenges, like we talk, it's set up very much in an ableist structure, and I think that one of the things we have to think of is, like, the, the university, to a certain degree, is still, the, the student that they still want as the student that can do the work 40 hours a week, that can treat college as a full-time job. I mean, that's what, I mean, that's kind of what, you know, I mean, and, and whether it be state, whether it be private, you know, any other student that's not that is not the ideal student. And I think that we have to acknowledge that. Now, you know, that's different when we're talking about community colleges. I mean, community colleges are kind of built around that population. But if we're talking about like four-year colleges and universities and pathway to postgraduate work, that is built for a particular privilege. And the privilege is, is that I can go to school and the school is 40, my 40-hour 40 job. And I think that more and more of our population of students who want to go, who wanted to commit to that four years is not that student. And sometimes it comes in and performs itself in the fact that, that maybe they come later in the life, in life, maybe they're in their 20s or even in their 30s before they start. I think another part of it is a lot of times you'll see it, especially in the beginning years and the, in the DFW rates, because a lot, I'm of the opinion that there are there are Fs and, and Ws, right? Most most Fs are Ws, right? Most Fs are withdrawals that didn't happen. And that, for the most part, we're seeing a, a particular type of dropping out that we're not acknowledging. Because it's not a dropping out, it's a forcing out. And unless uh, and, and until we can kind of reckon with that, not only as institutions, but articulate that to governing bodies, we are going to continue to have this problem, right? And it's going to continue to to plague and it's going to, and this is why there has been such an emergence of the, the for-profit college, 
and you know those those colleges that are you know making money in a very different way than traditional colleges are. So so yeah, I mean, and, and then the one of the problems there though is that that's when it's because the tuition is so high, people have to take on debt, right? I mean, so there's it's this kind of all these different concentric circles creating a very complicated Venn diagram of the lack of access. And when you do that, it's kind of like you have to level up. Uh, okay, so I've, I've defeated this demon. Now I have to defeat this demon at the gate. Now I have to defeat, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, it's like a video game. And that's so sooner or later, I'm going to have to deal with this, you know, somebody with a sword. And I know that. <laughs> but is it going to be the comp teacher doesn't get that I can't spend, you know, five, you know, 10 hours a week in writing a paper every week? Or is it going to be the financial aid office that, you know, doesn't understand my, my uh, life circumstances? Is it going to, you know, I mean, there's all these different kind of gates. Um, yeah, I'd love to build on that just a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, to be fair, I made the decision to start my PhD as self-funded, and I am actually a scholarship student as well. Because of the secret sauce of we give credit to people who get the money given to them. And I, I think this is an important piece that we don't talk nearly enough about, is that I was taught to bootstrap, pull your socks up, fund yourself, pay your own way, never ask for support. And then I found out, as I kind of climbed through the academy a little bit, that we only give credit to people who talk other people into giving them the money. And while I do, I am working very hard and I think that I deserved the scholarship that I got, it is nowhere near a living wage. It's the equivalent of about 15,000 US dollars. It would not pay for my shelter. It wouldn't, you know, groceries here have become quite extraordinarily expensive like it wouldn't be it's not enough to pay for me to do this 40 hours a week it'd be about I think about 650 us an hour is what it would break out to I couldn't I couldn't live on that and that is one of the shiniest scholarships in the country that's handed out and I look at that and I think that it's it's not just the funding bodies that Linda talked about it's also the people in positions of power, we actually, and it's a thing that I, I feel like I'll probably dive into at some point, we need to do a little bit of activism on what we consider a fair number as well. Because once again, this scholarship would not have been enough to pay for me to spend two hours each way on a bus every day. Because uh, it would barely have covered the cost of the bus every day to get to campus. And I, I think that's also a thing we've got to talk about. We've got to talk about the fact that we give credit to people who ask for money in the, the academy, a thing that first gens and high school dropouts and those of us who don't come from privilege don't understand. And then we also, in the effort to get this money, there are a ton of limitations. I have a max of external income that I can earn beyond this before they just take away my scholarship altogether. So it's actually like multi multiple layers of fiscal oppression that hit into the effort that's happening as well. And while we continue to talk about those, those hidden curriculum pieces, money is a secret sauce in the academy. And Linda's right. The schools get paid for finishing students. They get punished for students that drop out. And most of the students that are dropping out, they're not dropping out because they're not great students. They're not do dropping out because they're not smart enough. They're dropping out because they don't have the infrastructure behind them to do this. And I'm going to yeah. say some students don't belong in higher education. That's not the right place for them. Or in most of my experience, it's not the right program for them. I think that 
changing programs can be a, a game changer for a lot of students. But I, I think a lot of those, those fails are withdrawals that just were never coached. I think a lot of the students that drop out of university or high school are doing it because there's not the infrastructure to support them. And that's like a, a root cause that we have to address if we want to change the dialogue uh, and probably can't change it today because most of the people in positions of power and decision making come from seats of privilege. And well, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, a problem that, you know, kind of feeds itself. I mean, to go back to my earlier anecdote, the reason why my parents nagged me and said, okay, you know, no matter how poor you were, that you were going to do college, you know, you, that's all you're going to do is because they knew if I, if I worked, I would have dropped out. Right. I mean, it was like literally, we, you know, I mean, and we were poor, but the only thing we lived on was my parent, my, my father's retirement, social security. Right. And so you can, I mean, that was what we had. And um, because I wouldn't have, I mean, and we didn't, I mean, it was, it was horrible. It was a horrible experience, but he got through. But I could imagine, you know, that, I mean, what about the, what about those, those people who want to do school and don't have that, don't have the parents who feel that it has value, right? I mean, so there are like all these different kind of uh, obstacles. And then we sit, once you're in the academy, you're in a place of privilege. Doesn't matter where you came from, we are all privileged. You know, I mean, I, I can sit here and tell my, you know, tell my story of poverty. And again, poverty doesn't, never leads you. You're never not poor. If you grew up in poverty, you're never not, you, you don't lose poverty. But the fact is, is that I'm privileged. But I think the difference here is that many of us are aware of that privilege and trying to kind of address it. But the structures themselves have been built by, are maintained by, administered by those people who, have, who, who think that getting a grant is easy or getting a grant is really easy. Getting published is really super easy. Right. I mean, I've had these conversations where it's like, you know, oh, it's, that's easy. That's easy. That's easy. It's like, what about that process is easy? Because I don't find it easy. You know, so am I, am I, is there a deficiency in me? And then and it's at those moments when I realize, oh, that's right. I'm not a part of this. Even though I live here, I didn't grow up here. Well, even if you have, right, like you get the grants, like I've gotten grants, I've got funded, right? And even if you get to that point, and you realize like, like, hey, I'd rather be doing these things to, there's a pressure, right? To, I, I had a really hard time. Like I had basically panic attacks. I did not want to do my assistantship because it paid crap. Um, it covered the tuition and that was about it. And I was like, okay, if I give up this funding, right? That's 20 hours of my life that I could be doing elsewhere and making the same amount and just cash flowing it, building my CV while, a grad assistantship and administration just wasn't helping me with my teaching, right? I felt that it was right for me to give up the assistantship, which, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, the thing is, I also got it, right? Like there's a privilege of saying like, I'm rejecting this, right? I don't need the money, right? right? Other people did not get funded that needed to be funded. And so I was able to luckily help open that up, which sounds really like also messed up that it's like, oh, because I can find the money elsewhere for myself. That money can now go to somebody who was not going to be funded at all um, and probably might had to have taken on debt or whatever. I, I think a lot about the fact that not only at the grad level is this the case, but right at the undergrad level, right? Uh, there's pressure about scholarship, but 
nobody really talks about how to get undergrad scholarships. I still don't know how to. I understood the, how to get them during the transfer process. But I like if I were to be a high school student applying, I, I don't even know how you would get it besides merit scholarships, right? Yeah, um, I just Google it. I don't think, I don't really know either. I would just like Google well, things. That's the and... thing. I tried to Google it and it's really ridiculous and not easy to find out. So I just relied on merit scholarships for undergrad um, because mm -hmm. I was, you know, getting good grades and it was fine for me. But if you don't have that extra time or the family that Linda and I were talking about, right, that helped us through the college kind of experience, and you have to work 40 hours a week, 70 hours a week, because you're working a minimum wage job, and you're living in whatever city, that, that's a whole nother thing. Also, the fact that most of us are most likely not going to attend top 10 schools or Ivies. And that's also a whole nother issue, because when it comes to like, if you want to make academia your home, right? You need, have to, you need to have good academic reading. We talk about this. Also, we talk about, right, the consequences of what is quote-unquote called academic incest, um, which is not something that's readily talked about, but if you're going to the same school, you know, for all three degrees, your bachelor's, master's, and PhD, there's stigma against that. You're not going to get a job, most likely, in, unless your department decides to hire you because they want a product that's shaped by them, which some departments are like that. Um, <laughs> but there is definitely right stigma and the fact that you didn't go to top schools. Though you can break open doors, then there's the question of if you can afford it. So I got into Columbia and for my master's, for my second master's, and I decided not to go because I could not afford to justify picking up and moving to New York for a year right. um, to finish this master's. You know, there is a lot of questions about, right, uh, resources and locations, but also as far as undergrads go, because I think we should also kind of bring it back to that, because that was, you know, the initial piloting point. <laughs> if you're also neurodivergent in any way, asking somebody to do a 40-hour work week that is intellectually focused most likely is not going to be beneficial for them. It might not even be possible. And so the fact that we are asking people with schools that don't necessarily have programs, I know uh, Liz uh, Faber, right? She is she is working at um, for an, a program that's neurodivergent, which is mind-blowingly amazing, right? So they can maybe get those students out in, in the four-year time, right? But if you have you know, I, I, I went, I went to a two-year private school and there were students that were there for four years trying to get their associate and they weren't going part-time. And they, one of the students that I know because of just bad advice and from financial aid and just miscommunication and struggling academically because she was working two jobs, ended up not being able to continue on with her bachelor's because she maxed out her undergrad financial aid, getting an associate degree that did not open any doors for her. And that's not her fault, right? That is the fault of the school for first off letting her take out as many loans as she wants without actual education because the financial aid education, we all know that's a joke, right? Like five minutes to 15 minutes of onboarding paperwork that nobody reads and just clicks through is not necessarily going to be sufficient training and that understanding the implications. And so we have to really think about and reconcile if we're trying to turn higher education into an equalizing force like community colleges, right, which is there to be disruptive, is there 
it is funded in a different way, right? If that's the goal, right, to be disruptive, to actually promote equity and inclusion and not just use it as a, we're going to hire one diversity hire and that's going to be the entire department. You know, if we actually want to equalize the force, if we want to not have unicorns as the only people that are on staff for full-time tenure track positions, we really need to start thinking about what are we even doing as an institution? Is this institution even promoting equity or is this upholding white supremacy? Well, that ties to the hiring process too, right? Because again, I mean, we talk about this. I mean, let's just call it what it is, right? I mean, it's like most tenure line positions go to a very small group of people. And that small group of people are usually those who, you know, are in are in the R1 genealogies. And usually those are like upper tier genealogy. And so they're, I mean, you know, and it's a system, it's a, a system that feeds its own isolation. So yeah. can we maybe ask the question of the infrastructure that's required? Like Alex and Linda, you both mentioned your parents being really supportive of this. And I'm going to say, to be fair, my parents weren't ever really all that concerned with me um, participating in higher ed. When I told my dad I got into my PhD, he was like, oh, cool, you can do anything you want. My dad was also famously sexist. And I was the only non-male person who could do anything you want, including the biases he held against my other two sisters. So not awesome. But you know, the family infrastructure isn't there for everybody. Um, The financial capacity and knowledge isn't there for everybody. Um, University is the only place that will let somebody sign away a quarter million dollars without a fully formed brain. Like, Right, yes, very much. We let people take (laughs) on these giant debts that will change their life forever. I know a lot of people who have more than a house worth of debt for their brains and I'm all for growing as many brain babies as you can but had I not been as old as I was I probably would have taken on debt and that would have been a a massive change to who I have managed to be and the things that I can do now so if we could maybe talk a little bit about the infrastructure that's important and I would say and Alex mentioned it but academic twitter is actually one of my favorite support structures Um, it is universally welcoming sometimes there's some scandals and some bad people and there's definitely some terrible white ladies out there catfishing as people of color so we we should definitely acknowledge that but there is so many people and so many of my opportunities specifically have come Mm -hmm. because of it when I went through a really hard time you know pandemic I lost my dad last year I had like a lot of things just kind of coming at me at pace And I would not have stayed a PhD student and researcher had it not been for academic Twitter, had it not been for these amazing support structures in my DM saying, it's cool, I got you. Do you need help with that that feedback? Do you need help digesting that cruel reviewer? Can I help you reinterpret what your supervisor said? And those things that, that are so critical that are so paralyzing, you know, like one of my first drafts to my supervisors for my PhD was 10,000 words. And it came back with 6,000 words of feedback on it. And y'all, wow. I have three supervisors. So it wasn't actually that much mathematically per supervisor and whatever, but they had Still no idea the catastrophic weight of 6,000 yeah. words of feedback. Um, and were it not for my amazing network, I wouldn't have made it like I, I wouldn't have made it through that. 
and I've got a couple of like I have three postgraduate degrees <laughs> before I started my PhD. It's not like I'm new to feedback. I just never had that sheer volume. That amount. Yeah. Me. So, you know, are there other tools? Because I don't think the university system is ever going to be the infrastructure for neurodivergent students, for non-traditional students, for students that are coming from less privileged or non-privileged backgrounds, students who are facing multiple intersections of oppression. I don't think it's ever going to be the place to get support. So I'm wondering if maybe we could offer that, those tools, if possible. Is there other places, Linda or Alex or Julia, that you're getting support or you got support? Um, I guess for me, uh, when I was doing my PhD, I don't think I really discovered academic Twitter until the very end or after my PhD and just really leaning on other people in the program. Uh, for me, my my cohort was pretty close-knit, which was a very nice thing. And then the cohorts around us were close. And I st- those are the people I talked to. I don't talk to anyone from undergrad. I talk to people from my PhD. I think having a group of us who fully understood, we I was making less than 10 months than I think what Erin, uh, you said you were making. And I was fortunate that I had a summer graduate assistantship as well, but I was making very little money. And so I was one of those people who were taking out additional loans just to survive, just to pay my rent. And most of my student loan debt is now from grad school. Like three fourths of it came from the six years of grad school. And so there is definitely finding that group of people to lean on is very important, whether that's academic Twitter, whether that's finding people in your cohort or your program or other programs, you know, at the college or at the through like a professional organization that you can find and really lean on, on each other. But that's at the grad level, the undergrad level, it's so hard to know because, you know, I, I'm 32. And I graduated from my undergrad like a decade ago. And just from the differences between myself as an undergrad and watching everyone, all of the students, you know, in class and everything and watching them now are two very different, not even just learning styles, but all of my students have like part-time jobs, if not like three part-time jobs. And I just, I don't know how they're doing it. And I don't know how we as a, as a learning atmosphere can catch up with them or the other way around. I'm not sure which way that goes, but how we can adapt and make it a place that they can learn and still expect them to be able to juggle everything. And so that's, that's something that I'm personally struggling with of how to help my students who are, who are athletes and work one or two part-time jobs and trying to attend school full-time because to be able to have that five scholarship, they have to attend full-time. They have to be at least 12 credit hours, if not more. How do you, how do you juggle all of that without institutional help? And I don't, I don't expect an answer, but it's just like, that's what I'm personally struggling with as we're going through all of this discussion. And then it's not even necessarily a first gen or high school dropout question, because a lot of our students are first gen, um, but it's just a student question in general. We're, we're shifting, at least in the States, we're shifting how students are attending university and being able to afford, because there is there's so much discussion around student loans and don't take them out, don't take them out, don't take them out, which is great. That's an awful thing to take, you know, $250,000 when you're 18. Seems absurd. You think, oh, I can pay it off later. But at the same time, by hammering this don't take out student loans, we're also making an atmosphere and a culture where students have to work all the time. And balancing these two things, balancing not taking loans, which I completely am for, but also balancing you also need to get an education. And if you're working so tired that you can't, stay awake in class and is it worth it and and juggling these two viewpoints well and you mentioned the cohort thing like I started 
just before the pandemic, my PhD. So I had a couple of months where I shared a space with fellow PhD students and haven't been back there since to speak of. I think that it has to be something that we're also aware of in this context that some of us may never go back to the classroom, back to the university, back to the lab. And I think that that's, that's a hard kind of consequence. Yeah, I, I think that it's interesting because I also want to, I think we need to clarify that academic Twitter, as much as it's for everybody, it's really for academics, right? There are certain instructors and people that will be very inclusive to undergrads. Um, but there's also the hostile kind of, this is our space people as well. So that that's an interesting thing, right? Um, as far as undergrad and support, so I will be fully honest, if I did not have my, for undergrad, I would have not finished if I didn't have the support system I had in place of my family. As far as grad school, I was very much, I went to, Julie and I went to the same school as a master's student. We didn't student, know each other though, I don't think. We didn't. No, we, we, you had graduated right before I started and I, but I did hang out in your circle of friends. So like Shannon. Um, They're pretty cool friends. Yeah, they are. Um, and what's interesting though, is I took out loans to survive during grad school because I, as a master's student, I got 4,000 less than Julia got. <laughs> Um, I was ranking everybody's uh, assistantship and I knew different departments got different monies um, because I was so upset that I was making, and I will be bluntly honest, $10,000 in tuition remission. $10,000 is bullshit. I worked four jobs my last semester. I worked as an adjunct teaching four classes. I worked as a barista and I worked um, at my assistantship as well, which I was teaching six classes in my last semester, two for my assistantship, working 10 hours as a research assistant working as a barista and being a student. That's not normal. <laughs> that shouldn't be the case, but that's how I did it. So I stopped taking out the loans. Um, but I only got that adjunct job later on in my, after I did 18 credits. <laughs> so the first year was completely like, how do I supplement this money without taking out too much loans? But um, most of my loans were for my master's and I would never do that again. Um, I actually regret my time at BG because of that. Not necessarily because, and I think there's also this issue is that because I was funded, everybody was telling me, stay in the program, stay there because you're funded. Even if it was partial funding, because that's, let's be real, that's what that is. Um, it is not full funding. Unless you can actually have a livable wage, um, which really no grad program actually provides a livable wage. They can't afford to, right? That's, that's partial funding, right? And so, but, as a master's student, I didn't have the part in the contract that said I could not work another job. Some of the PhDs did. So they would still work as adjuncts. 90% um, of them worked as adjuncts. It was just, you don't talk about it or else you're going to get kicked out of the program possibly, which nobody, I think they would ever do that. But I, I just think that, right? Like we have to be bluntly honest about what does funding even look like, right? Like I got my insurance, I got my tuition remission and I got my stipend, right? And I think I actually had to pay for the insurance separately out of that. So I really got $8,000. So I work and I did take out loans and it's something that I'm now reconciling and paying back and I'm living like a pauper this year. I decided to pull out of buying a house, which I, I'm very lucky that I even was able to consider doing such a thing. But Instead of buying a house, I'm going to spend the next uh, three to four years aggressively paying off my student loans. And I am lucky to have a very low cost apartment, which again, is pure privilege and luck. It was, it's very much lucky. 
elderly neighbor, somebody passed away and her tenant passed away and she didn't want a stranger in the house. And she knew me because I was living with my sister and she offered me the apartment at a great deal. And so again, that's pure luck, right? That's, that's almost like having family, even though she's not my family. Um, she's sort of become my family, which is allowing me to do what I'm doing. But it, it's really concerning to think about how many people don't have those resources or luck, because this is pure luck for me. Um, the only reason why I'm continuing my education now is pure luck um, or working. I, I don't think there's an easy way to navigate this, but we need some kind of support system. And I don't think for the undergrads that are working, you know, for jobs, unless we rethink what rigor is, which is also problematic and ableist and racist, et cetera, unless you think about what assignments we're doing and what actually is going to be covered within a credit hour, and we actually think about the actual foundation of accreditation and crediting bodies, I predict that we're going to have a higher dropout rate. And I do foresee our jobs becoming even more scarce as people switch to credential programs. So like Corsica, um, Google, all those things that are, you know, pay a thousand dollars, get your certification and become an IT professional. Why would I go and pay for, you know, for four years at $50,000 a year or whatever private schools off uh, asking for to get an entry-level job, right? When I can get an entry-level job and then keep on promoting because I take all these classes that are helping me build in tech or whatever, right? Unless I'm going into medicine or education, there's no reason for me to, to really go on to get a higher ed degree. I mean, I, I, I constantly think about, there's a lot of businesses around here that hire people for HR that don't have a bachelor's degree. They just have experience that they got through working at small companies and now they're HR managers at Target, right? And they're making $60,000 a year, but they don't have a college degree. These alternative paths are becoming, I think, more and more normal. And I don't think we're aware of it as people in the academy, as I'm, you know, seeing what's going on. We're isolated, right? I mean, the, the future of higher education is changing. And actually that, I mean, because Julia put in the, the chat, I know she has to read it a little bit. Um, see? <laughs> Uh, I was wondering, I was gonna, I was gonna suggest something because I think that there's so much rich ground here. Um, one of the things that I'm concerned about is, and this is, might be a conversation that we should have, right? And that is the structure of higher education and the future of it, because there's a part of us that, I mean, trained in the tradition and trying to hold on to tradition. And the question is whether or not that tradition is worth holding on to and in the ways that we, we, we perceive it. But also, I think that there's another conversation that connects to pop culture, and that is the representation of the academy and academics in general, right? I mean, so I'm thinking of the, the new Netflix series, The Chair, which I know many people love. I didn't. Um, I'll be honest with you about that. Um, I thought it was really, really problematic <laughs> uh, because it goes back, you know, uh, the, the, the academy is not the eye. Same thing with Big Bang Theory. Right and the mis you know misrepresentation of what you know tenure is and, uh, and all those different things. So we have this kind of script that's going on, and at the same time we're trying to have this conversation isolated from the perceptions and the really the perceptions of what we do is what's going to determine the future of what we do because we're losing we've lost the patronage from the culture that I don't think we've recognized and also the adjunctification of faculty right the fact that. If the academy is really there to push forward knowledge, or are we there to create credentials? Because right now what we're doing is creating credential, uh, credentials and not actually producing knowledge because we don't have time 
we don't have the funding and we don't have the resources to actually produce knowledge. And if you are a unicorn and you push out 10 articles or you're, you know, a Brian Earp who has a like 30 H index, right? Like, which is insane. Um, genius. You're such in a minority that you're this beautiful golden goose that literally everybody would want. Um, rightfully so, because you're working among whether that's be from privilege or just pure luck or resources or whatever it is, or just you don't sleep and you're killing yourself, which I've seen people do, right? There's um, There was a faculty member at my alma mater as an undergrad, and he, he published insane amount, like, and I mean an insane amount. He was literally a workhorse and he had a heart attack in his sleep because he just didn't take care of himself physically. And he was only 36 or eight. Like, I'm 32 now. I'm getting to that age. Am I going to work myself into that? Or am I going to prioritize my health? And the academy doesn't allow you to prioritize your health. Not if you want to be competitive, not coming from an R1, right? Um, or an IV. And even if you're in an IV or an R1, you have to work at a level that's not normal because you're not competing with everybody that has the same credentials as you. And there was that conversation a couple months ago on academic Twitter about a Yale historian who could not get a job and she has a book um, and all these other things and people were like well that's because you're work you're now traveling within an elite circle which is problematic right because if you do this pinnacle as she was a first gen student you do this pinnacle right of reaching everything that you're supposed to you get to the ivy you do everything you still can't get the job but now it's because you're too qualified for an, an average state school I don't even know. Where are we going from here? So, yes. Yeah. Oh, I don't think we're going anywhere. <laughs> so, this turned into a much longer episode, but I think it was a good, fantastic conversation. So, I'll have to have you all back for more conversations because this was really interesting. Before we leave, though, where can people find you on the interwebs? If you want to be found, where can you be found? Um, I can be found on Twitter. My handle, I feel like it's CB Radio, right? My handle is uh, Book Doll. B-O-O-K-D-A-L. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Um, my handle is um, armchair underscore Phil. So like armchair philosopher, because I'm never going to be a real philosopher as a pop culture scholar. That's, oh, that's I that. think you could. Oh, I know. But <laughs> philosophy doesn't think so. <laughs> and Aaron? Um, all of the like the regular ones, the Google Scholar, the Academic Gate, and blah blah blah. Uh, but the place that I'm most commonly is Academic Twitter, um, and I'm at Aaron K. Brawl. I'm not very exciting that way, um, but I think all of us have to be part of the redefinition. And I think that that's our sort of my takeaway today is that there is new ways to define things, and the scholar scholarly way doesn't have to look the same way it has for a few hundred years. I think we have an opportunity to redefine what all of us look like and sound like and talk like and what a good academic can be. I agree. And as normal, you can find me at Julia Largent on Twitter, which is my first and last name. So I'm also not that exciting here. Thank you for the three of you for joining today. Um, and thank you listeners for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date with our episodes. If you have any questions or would like to connect with PCSJ, check us out on Twitter at the PCSJ. You can also find more information on our website, mpcaaca.org, and then navigate to the PCSJ tab on the menu. Thanks for listening.